Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to our latest episode of the Bully Pulpit. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us on Zoom, uh, watching on our Facebook live feed, or who will watch on YouTube. Uh, it's a privilege for us today to have Ro Khanna with us. Uh, his congressional district encompasses Silicon Valley. In fact, he ran for Congress several times before he won by upsetting a Democratic incumbent. And he is now a major force in the Democratic caucus, in the House of Representatives, and a major thought leader in American politics. Uh, we're honored to have him with us today to discuss his provocative and path-breaking new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. The Nobel Prize winner, uh, Amartya Sen, describes this book as exciting and splendidly written. And having read it carefully, I actually totally agree with that. The two of us will engage in a conversation for about 45 minutes then we'll open this up to questions from the audience. Uh, you're also welcome to buy this book if you haven't already, after we're finished. I'm gonna begin with a very simple question because you allude to it in the book. I wanna ask you to talk about your own remarkable journey in life before we get to the issues that are in here. Well, Bob, first let me say what an honor it is uh, to be here at USC, to be here with you. I uh, don't wanna age you, but I will say as a student, I remember uh, admiring, Bob, your work, uh, the, your words, your uh, giving voice to democratic ideals, uh, and really are one of the great uh, writers and thinkers of modern times uh, for so many democratic causes. So it's an honor to have this conversation with you, and great to be here at USC. You know, I have a uh, story that is is quite a remarkable story from the from perspective of America, and it's we're all shaped by our stories. I uh, was born in Philadelphia in uh, 1976, our bicentenary. My parents are immigrants from India. My father came here uh, and uh, studied chemical engineering. My mom was a substitute school teacher. My grandfather spent almost four years in jail uh, alongside Gandhi in the 1940s as part of India's independence movement. Uh, and a part uh, for the quest for freedom. And I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And part of the reason, and we can get more into this, that people say, how are you hopeful and optimistic about the country? And I think we're all subject to our life experiences. And when I was growing up, I had little league coaches and teachers who said you can do anything in America. I mean, obviously, uh, you, I was teased and had some of those experiences. But what stands out is how much people believed in me, and, and even when I messed up. And so a lot of my hope comes from my upbringing in Bucks County, and I always love to go back there. My parents are still there. Yeah. I have to note, by the way, that in 
1976 when you were born, I'd already been through my first presidential campaign. Uh, so, so I want to talk about the book. You focus on how the digital economy could create new opportunities for people who've been left out and left behind in places where they live instead of uprooting both their livelihoods and their lives. You even mention a place that's been called Silicon Holler. What has to be done? Tell me about that. But what has to be done to achieve this kind of change? And what are the respective roles of government and free enterprise? Well, let's take Bertrand first a step back. In my view, the last time we had a trade surplus in this country was 1975. The last 50 years, this country, we basically had its policy, which has allowed places like my district, Silicon Valley, to thrive, or LA to thrive, New York to thrive, and the vast majority of places uh, across America have been deindustrialized. People's jobs have been taken from them. We said production didn't matter. It was dirty. We didn't need it. And we let all those jobs go away. And we took away people's pride. We took away people's dignity. And for 50 years, we ignored a lot of these places. So you know what we said? We said, go move. Go move. That's what we said. Go get these new jobs. And people didn't move. And there was depression. It didn't. It wasn't just the destruction of the economy. It was the destruction of the community. So part of what I believe is that we have to bring production back to America and that the new technology can allow us to bring production back to America. But the second thing I believe is that these 25 million digital jobs and the $10 trillion of market value in my district that we have to distribute the opportunities, that we can't just have that concentrated in a few coastal towns. And so this is something that uh, is very possible. It requires the public sector, uh, the colleges and community colleges to work with these tech companies in many ways to uh, have basic credentials. It doesn't even often require a college degree. And in the case of Paintsville, Kentucky, there's someone, Alex Hughes, who I write about, who said, I know how to build things. I know how to make things. And here's the thing. He's, he's gotten one of these jobs after some training. And he's not coding for Google. He's not sitting there doing social media. He's building refrigerators. But they're the modern refrigerators that require some technology. And so he got a six-month credential. And now he's building these things. And he's making money. And he's staying in Paintsville, Kentucky. And he's working with people in Chicago and the coast. Bob, we can get more into it, but here's my fundamental view. This is, I think, the only thing, the shot we have to get this country together is to start working together economically, to building things together economically. The appeal to high principles uh, is very hard, but an appeal to making things in this country and building things, I think that can help bridge some of the divides. You know, the, the uneven distribution that you just talked about, uh, what's been remarkable, growth due to technological innovation really does, I think, contribute to the forces that are tearing this country apart. Can you talk about the political fallout of all this? Well, I was in Anderson, Indiana, and a person came to me, Fred, when I've been eight years old. He said, Congressman, I want to give you a binder. I said, sure, what's in the binder? Forty planned closings documented one after the other in this binder. And he started to talk to me about what that meant. He said some of the guys had to go a couple hours to get jobs. Their wives, because it was a bit gendered, their wives didn't want them to leave. So they went to divorce. He said we used to be able to celebrate Christmas at the plant with everyone. We used to celebrate Thanksgiving. Now we don't. 
People used to know if someone else had a family member was sick, now they don't. And we neglected it. And let's just be honest, if I represent Silicon Valley, people were more concerned about flying to Europe and, 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 and Ireland than they were flying to Indiana. And there was a total neglect. Total neglect. The first thing the Democratic Party ought to say is there was a collective failure in this country to focus on rural communities, to focus on factory towns, to observe what was happening as production was going offshore. And it was a mistake. We didn't invent uh, the, the automobile, the Germans did. We didn't invent the jet engine. We mass produced it. Now we invented the semiconductor, we invented the solar panel, Bell's Labs. And we said, oh, the production doesn't matter. Who thought that was a good idea? You did, because you were in Gephardt's race in 88. But the country collectively made a mistake. I'm not pointing fingers, but I think that's the first thing we ought to say. People keep saying, how do you get about the MAGA Republicans, all this? First, acknowledge there was a mistake that was made, an economic mistake. We should have never given up the production. And that's how we're going to focus on these communities and we're going to provide economic opportunity. And let's figure out together how we do it. You just triggered something, a memory in me. Uh, in 1960, when JFK was running, he ran in the West Virginia primary. He entered the primary and he was 20 points ahead. And then they found out he was a Catholic. And suddenly he was 20 points behind. And he decided he was going to confront the issue and see if he could move it. But he was pretty convinced on election day, as was the entire national press corps, that he was going to lose West Virginia and maybe the nomination. And he was back in Washington and he told Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, one of his aides, he said, you know, I've never seen anything like I've seen in West Virginia. The way these people live, I mean, he obviously came from incredible privilege. He said, the way these people have to live, he'd gone down to the coal mines. He'd walked through these towns where there were nothing but mud trails. And he said, by God, I know I'm going to lose this primary today. But if I get to be president, I'm going to do something to help these people. Well, of course, he didn't lose the primary. He won it very convincingly. Became president, and the first piece of legislation was called the Area Redevelopment Act. And it poured a lot of money into helping industries, including ones that we maybe don't want right now, like coal mining, sure. but helping to shore that all up. As a result, West Virginia was mostly reliably Democrat all the way up until 2000. Do you think that we have to undertake initiatives like that and make them very visible to people? And Because you speak the words, I mean, not you, but if a politician speaks the words, but you don't make a concrete difference in people's lives, I don't think it'll work. I completely agree. Let me give another Kennedy example, Bobby Kennedy, and then get into what I think should be done. Bobby Kennedy at Bedford Stuyvesant gave this amazing speech where he said, to redevelop Bedford Stuyvesant, which is actually in uh, New York. It's not just government. It's going to be business. It's going to be community leaders. It's going to be faith leaders. It's going to be all of us, and we're going to revitalize it together. I think that's what the Democratic Party, I call it the new economic patriotism. I think we ought to say we're going to build, open up new factories across this country in make steel here, make masks here, make baby formula here, make some aluminum here. Make some semiconductor chips. It doesn't just have to be the high-tech stuff. I mean, we didn't make so much, and people are hungry for it, but it can't just be tax credits. You know, I, you know what FDR was great on? He had the New Deal on everything. You know, we do tax credits, and people don't know about it. 
I said, have the president show up at a 10 factory count, stand with a business leader and announce the opening of a new factory. We did that in Columbus, Ohio. The chips act that I helped lead with Senator Schumer and Todd Young and Mike Gallagher, bipartisan president to sign it. He shows up in Columbus, Ohio. $20 billion of investment into Columbus, Ohio, 7,000 new jobs. There's an Iranian immigrant vice president of Intel standing there with a thick accent talking about the new jobs that are going to be created and fifth generation residents of Ohio are cheering him. And he's talking to an eight-year-old kid uh, who says, and he says you could be the future CEO of Intel. That's what's going to bring this country together, things like that. So uh, if we, if things like that aren't done and are undertaken, how long is it going to take for them to counter the polarization the social alienation, and even the racism that currently seems to blight a lot of the country. I mean, well, I get it. I, look, I'm not an economic determinist. I don't think that you just wave the economics and it solves everything. But I'll say this, when you have conditions where people's pride has been taken away, when you have conditions where people's dignity has been taken away, you fuel the conditions for more polarization. And when you have conditions where we're working together to make money and build prosperity, and have opportunity, you create the conditions for more understanding. I say this, we had the most talented politician of our generation, Barack Obama, who appealed to the most highest principles in the most eloquent way that I haven't seen in my time someone who can do it better, not even close, and the country left more divided. So what is the hope? My view is one of the hopes is the economic hope, that we can actually start to work to say, we're going to build new production. We want America to be preeminent. We don't want the American dream to slip away. I've been pushing the president should have a goal. Why does he say we should have a trade surplus? Our goal should be a trade surplus by 20, 2035. Now, people say, is that protectionist? No, it's not protectionist. I'm not saying we should have perpetual trade surpluses. But how about we don't have a perpetual trade deficit for 50 years? How about we don't have trade deficits with millions of jobs lost? How about we produce things? Those are things I think that can bring the country together. Those are things that Republicans will be for. And, and then a, and having two new factories opened up in every, every country, every part of this country, every district, and have the president go out to them. And, and, and by the way, now we have the cost of shipping is higher, the cost of labor overseas is higher, but we need government financing. We need government purchasing. We need uh, strategic tariffs where the industry is being developed. You know what the sad thing was, Bob? I was out in Indiana, and I was saying, we've got to make more steel here. And this journalist turns to a reporter, to, to uh, one of the people there, who was a Trump supporter. And he says, you know, this kind of guy, he's talking about making things in America. I thought that was a Trump thing. And I said, wow, that was an FDR thing. FDR is the one who built the industrial base of America. We have got to get back to those bases. The other thing, and you're a much better speechwriter than I'll ever be, but it's mind-boggling to me. When the president talks about making things in America and building things in the two minutes he gets in the State of the Union, the dials go off the charts. It's 90% Democrats, independents, Republicans like it. I think it's only the Democrats. Well, what do we think? It's too cliche. We can't just make the whole speech about that. We do it for two minutes, and then we can move on to 15 other topics. Having worked on State of the Union messages, I will say that one of the great curses is you've got every department in the government is sending in all the things they want said, and so they tend to become laundry lists, and it's a real fight 
to try to give them a, a thematic framework. I think when you leave people without hope, when you leave them in the situation you describe where they don't know what's happening in other families, their friendships drift away, they don't have common experiences at work or in the community, they look for scapegoats. And they become very susceptible to an argument that the problem in America is entirely driven by immigrants, for example, or the problem is entirely driven by foreign trade. I myself think it's going to take a while, even if we do all the things you want to do, it's going to take a while for people to forget and forgive what they think has happened to them and what they assume we don't care about or Democrats don't care about. I am a Democrat. But they assume Democrats don't care about. When in fact, if the Democratic Party, in my view, doesn't stand up for working people, then what's it for and what's it all about? We have been saying this consistently for, for years with Gore, Pat Kennedy, with Gephardt. And here's the sobering fact that I think everyone should remember. Since 1980, the working class and middle class in America has lost 25% of wealth. 25% of wealth. And people, you know, I've seen polling where you ask, do you believe the American dream is dead? Most people don't think it's dead, but it's sad to me that people say it's been downsized. There's so many people in this country who don't believe they're going to have as good a life as their parents. You know, if you ask the question in my district, are you optimistic about America, how many hands go up? It's 80%. They all think the world's their oyster. And why shouldn't every person in this country have the same chances as people in my district? That's all we're talking about. And it can't simply, I am on the progressive side of the Democratic Party. I am for Medicare for all, I'm for uh, $15 wage, I'm for increasing Social Security, but I'll tell you something, it can't simply be about government support. It has to be about the opportunity to produce, to contribute, to build. That is what gives people pride, and that's what many have lost. Uh, is that what you mean by a progressive capitalism, which you write about in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, it's partly what I mean is that we need to celebrate entrepreneurship and small businesses and building things and the market economy that has allowed America to become an economic power. But there are two things about that. We should be make sure everyone has the opportunity to participate. You know, my parents are immigrants from India, and they all say, well, I came with $8 in my pocket. I said, yeah, in a degree. I mean, come on, let's be real. You know, and you had health care when you were in India, and you had health care here. I just want the same thing I had. Got to go to good public school. I hope people don't have to take the loans I did, but, you know, I, I had to, to good health care. I never had to worry about going to a dentist. Is that so much to ask in this country? I got to live in a safe neighborhood? That's what I mean by progressive capitalism. Go look at the bios of all these quote-unquote self-made billionaires in my district there. They deserve a lot of credit. They're working really hard. They took a lot of risks. They all come from at least upper middle class families. They know none of them had to worry about health care. None of them had to worry about what they would have to do if their credit cards were maxed out. They all had families. They weren't rich. They were either lawyers or doctors or middle, upper middle class. And the second thing I mean by progressive capitalism is it's okay to root for your home team. It's okay to care about a place. You know, my wife still roots for the Browns. I don't know why she keeps rooting for them, right? And we, we, what do we do in this country? We kind of said, well, it's not okay. Let the corporations go anywhere for cheap labor. It didn't matter. 
It's a globalized world. Well, how has that worked out? The rise of populism, right, populism in the United States, the rise of populism in Brexit in Europe because they deindustrialized Northern England, the rise of populism in anti-immigrant sentiments in Italy, in Germany, the rise of, 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 of uh, right wing in India. It didn't work. Globalization has to take account for place. And that means progressive capitalism has to say, no, we aren't just going to let you bankrupt a manufacturer after 100 years for and ship it offshore. There should be some tax on that or some penalty to, to breaking communities. Yeah, I want to go on to the digital issues, but what you just said is very provocative. You're not calling for a rollback of globalization. You're call, calling for a new form of globalization, I assume. Yes, I mean, well, globalization's done a lot of good. Millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in China and India and other parts of the world. The fact is that it would be naive to think that all supply chains can suddenly be in the United States. But can we have our fair share? <laughs> Do we have to have all of it globalized and nothing here? I mean, I'm saying let's reimagine it so we have our share of good paying jobs, our share of industries, and then we trade. By the way, um, one of the arguments I make, and maybe this is academic, but I think uh, it, it, it will get breakthrough. thrown. I think having balanced, rebalancing production with China is a better way to peace. If you look at the opium war, the cause of the opium war in the 1800s, Britain was buying all of the China, Chinese porcelain, Chinese silk, and uh, China didn't want to buy British wool. They wanted just silk, which Britain didn't have. And then Britain was buying the tea. So Britain was losing all the gold and silver, and they needed the gold and silver for their colonies. So what did Britain do? They were wrong to do it. They went to India, which they had colonized. My grandfather fought against. And they grew uh, opium in Bengal. And they sent it into China, and they started getting the Chinese addicted. Totally wrong to do it. And the Chinese uh, basically then shot at the British ships and started the opium war. I said to the Chinese ambassador, what is the lesson of that, that structural trade deficits drive resentment, hate, and conflict? Anyone who cares about peace with China, not having a new Cold War, should be for rebalancing our production with China. And would you go beyond that? I mean, in terms of Europe, India, all these other powers that I think are at the heart of the world economy. And then, and then of course, you have Africa, which has been almost entirely left out of this equation. What are the new rules of the road that we need? Well, I think one we should have more distributed production, not as much reliance on just China or Asia. So some of this is about having the global supply chains be with allies in, in Japan, Korea, and in India, and Mexico, and Canada. Some of it is figuring out what is the critical parts that we need here. Can we have enough steel, enough aluminum, enough mass, so that if there's a pandemic, we don't aren't as dependent, enough baby formula. We don't need 60% of microwaves to be coming from China. I mean, we, we have just paid no attention to production in this country. It was a, it, it was deliberate because we thought let's just have the noble warriors. And so I would I would make sure we build things in this country with government and private sector and educational institutions all working together. It's not, and you know what I'm saying, it's totally unoriginal. That was what Hamilton said. That's what FDR said. And the difference, the clear difference, I think the way to attack Trump, by the way, for the Democratic Party is to say, okay, you said you didn't want our jobs offshore. You said you wanted production back. Let's look at your four years. Trade deficit with China went up. Where are the new factories? President Biden's getting $20 million into Ohio. What do you do? 
and you want to really build the new factories, you can't exclude women. You can't, you can't exclude people who are LGBTQ+. You can't exclude immigrants. You know, the, the people who built our country were women in this. It was the, the men were fighting World War II. It was the women in the factories. So an economic patriotism to take on a billion people in India, China, and have our shares, got to have everyone. We don't have a person to write off in this country. And you know one thing that's my pet peeve, because I know we're so focused on we have to have a better path for people who are uh, who don't have a college degree and, and, and we, we absolutely need vocational education and to honor the trades and have production, which is the biggest thing we can do. But since when has it become fashionable to bash education in this country? Where you have Democrats out there, I mean, they're the height of hypocrisy. They've all gone to USC or Yale or Harvard, and they stand in these conventions, and they tell everyone else how college is terrible, but for them, but for their families. Everyone else tells you know what it takes to build stuff in America? It takes plumbers, and it takes machinists, and it takes PhDs. And we should celebrate all of that. Yeah, my dad was a tool and die maker. And his one determination from the time I was a little kid I would go to a good college and then I would go to a good graduate school or a good professional school. And it happened. So I agree with you. And I think this whole notion that we blast higher education because it does cost money is crazy. And the idea that we should, for example, get rid of the liberal arts, which inform a lot of our values, is, it strikes me as crazy. But I thought I'd switch to digital issues, social media. Uh, you, you argue in the book for an Internet Bill of Rights to regulate the largest tech companies and protect freedom on the Internet. What would that Bill of Rights look like, and what are the prospects for securing those rights? At its core, it's got a very simple principle. You own your data. You shouldn't have people take your data from you and use it without your knowing what's happening to it. And people say, why, why does this matter? Because you know what your data is being used for? It's being used to build social profiles, and then these companies are targeting ads to people to recommend that they join QAnon. They're targeting ads to recommend that they support candidates that you may not support. And, you know, when you walk into Walgreens, would you ever agree that you have to fill out 20 pages of forms about what you like to eat and what you like to wear and what your hobbies are? Of course not. And then you're willing to do that every time you're on these platforms. So if we just had a law that said, before any of your data is taken, you've got to say what you're comfortable getting up, and you've got to say what it can be used for. In other words, if you want to see a pizza place ad in Los Angeles as opposed to Fremont, fine, you can be targeted for that, but not if you don't want it to be used for other things. That would solve a lot, and it would stop these companies from gathering more of data and micro-bargaining in the way they do. Would they still be economically viable if they couldn't sell the data? They would need, they, they would need to be, yes, because you still could have some form of advertising on these platforms. You still could have a subscription model. Uh, there are ways that they still could be uh, economically viable. You still, you know, people still do Google search, and they still will be using their, the apps on the iPhone, and you still probably would have Facebook. It just wouldn't be, maybe it won't be worth $600 million, or maybe it will be worth a little less. But, you know, the, the reality is that they're, they're media companies. 
and they should have some responsibility and role to a democracy. I mean, I, I don't know, if you, if you want to just purely maximize economic value, I don't know if the stations would ever, they certainly would never have made one. I mean, they, they, I don't know if they'd ever have the news on them. It was just pure economic maximization. But they have some sense of responsibility to the public. And these, these companies need to have the same thing. Yeah, that, you know, Bill Paley, when he ran CBS, understood that the news division was a money loser. But to him, it was the crown jewel of the network. And they would defend it. The other thing you, you talk about that I'm really fascinated with, is you say the nation needs alternative discursive spaces on the internet with real guardrails against the spread of violence, hate, and disinformation. I'm going to quote you on page 203. You write, any diversified market of digital platforms would also include public social media options funded by tax dollars and free of data collection where people can debate ideas without fear of manipulation. How would this work? And can it ever get passed? I'm impressed you've read, you've read the whole book, Bob. Usually the, 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 the moderators and interlocutors read like one hundred times or some review before coming in, so I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Well, it's a terrific book. I started reading it, and I kept reading it. The, um, so here's the point. Obviously, we need platforms, not just public platforms, because let's consider the George Floyd protest. There's a place for anger. There's a place for wanting to organize. And uh, you can do that on Instagram, on social media, and that's fine. But not every conversation needs to be uh, one where there's not an exchange of ideas. We, this, this conversation, for example, there are a lot of rules. If someone got up and started yelling and protesting, they probably politely have their say and then be asked to leave. And there are reasonable time, place restrictions and you raise your hand, you ask a question. We need more forms like that. The government can be one part of creating that form. That doesn't mean that it's the only form. And especially in local communities. Imagine if local communities, local towns, local cities set up a form where people could exchange ideas about what's happening in their community, what's actually affecting their lives. Is there crime? Is there uh, issues of their school? Uh, and then are participating. You know, that's basically the town hall. That's the town hall. Why aren't we creating? I said to Facebook, they're near my district, I said, create the modern town halls. Have every congressperson have access to doing a town hall on Facebook with certain rules. Do that on Twitter. Build actually constructive digital platforms. And this is one of the points I try to get across in the book. After the printing press, I didn't know this until I researched it. The printing press now, which we all celebrate, Erasmus was a big champion for it. Comes out and says, this is terrible. It's leading to pamphlets of misinformation. It's leading to war. It took a hundred years of the effort to build liberal democratic institutions for us now to celebrate the printing press. That was a hundred years of the enlightenment and achievement. We have to build the modern public institutions. My criticism of the tech leaders is not one of, well, why didn't you anticipate all of the harm? Who could have? My criticism is having humility to know that you can't solve all of this and it's going to require collectively us to build modern digital platforms so that we use these tools in a constructive way. So what do they say when you say, why don't you create a series of town halls? You know, they, they say, oh, nice idea to go talk to government affairs. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's not going to help their bottom line. But I'll tell you, they have 
realize that that the, wor the world as they conceive it isn't working, and this is one of the reasons Google is doing a project with me. It's a pilot project, 10, 10 places, historically black colleges, Hispanic serving institutes, and rural land-grant universities, places like Allegheny, Pennsylvania, Jefferson, Iowa. They're taking 20 kids, they're giving them a $5,000 stipend, 10 hour course, at the end of 18 months they get a $65,000 job, and they stay in the community they're growing up in. Here's the challenge, we need the private sector. You can't do it just with the community colleges and land grants. You need the, the credentialing. And you need their, them to step up and say, Helen doesn't know zip code. And I said to the president, this is another idea, I said, just convene all the HBC leaders and the tech leaders and say, let's have a million rural tech jobs, a million jobs for uh, black Americans, and, and get them to do it. Some of the stuff doesn't even require government. And I guess this is the one thing I... I, I going to be a strong supporter of the president for his rerun the election. I think he's done a very good job. But the one thing the Democrats can do better, when I was in Indiana, they, they, was, you know, they kept calling him Giveaway Joe. And they said, well, your job's so easy. You just go to Congress and you sign these checks and you just spend this money. And one of the things we haven't done well as a Democratic Party is to make this not just about government, but to make this about all of us, to say, we have had years of decline in this country. We're going to change that. We're going to produce things again. We're going to build things. We're going to do it in every community, and it's not going to be just government. It's going to be the private sector. It's going to be the education leaders. It's going to be faith leaders, and collectively, we're going to rebuild America. And I think people will respond to that. And I think the president needs to get out into these towns more. Yeah, and, it, and you've talked about a new Apollo moment. Yeah. Uh, and to assure that America leads in advanced technology, new products that, for example, will be at the heart of renewable energy. But as we've seen during COVID, COVID, science doesn't command the same universal respect it did in the 1960s. How can we build support for the kind of broad-range scientific investment you're in favor of when people are still, are in, at least a portion of the population, is so skeptical about science? I think we pick things starting out that aren't that controversial. One of the things I'd love for us to be championing more is NASA. Did you see the news about the, the asteroid coming to, to possibly, uh, if an asteroid were coming to the Earth, they shot up a, a space shuttle to knock it down? I mean, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. The United States government's NASA may have saved the planet in the future from an asteroid attack. But why are we out there? Everyone yeah, by the way, if the, if the dinosaurs had known about this in five million years ago. <laughs> well, this is what the Democrats feel to be talking about. You, you, everyone says government's the problem. Look at what the United States government is doing. And no other nation is doing it. It's America who's doing it. Don't you want to fund that? So you start with things like that, which I think even some Republicans would go for. And then you say, who do you want to lead in AI, in quantum computing? in the technologies of the future. I want America to lead. I don't want China to lead. I don't want other countries to lead. I want America to lead in that investment. Now, on climate, I get that that's controversial. We have to continue to build the case. You know, we have to build the case for why uh, battery technology matters, why I want our country leading electric vehicles and clean steel, and why that's an opportunity. But if we talk about production more broadly, 
And we say, yes, it's about the clean stuff, but it's also about just producing things in advanced technology more broadly. I think we can get it by because then you're not politicizing it uh, on just the, the climate agenda. And then we keep most of the new construction is going to be clean. Aluminum, which is made in China, it's been made by coal-fired plants. You build, bring aluminum production back to America. That's, that's good for the environment. You can settle it to the Republicans. It's just it's going to lower the trade deficits and have jobs. You talk to the uh, people who care about the climate, about how it's going to help the climate. But I, I think there's a way to get uh, still support. And we're still a, we're a nation that believes in the future. One of the things people didn't like this when I went on my side, when I went on Fox News. They don't like it any time I went on Fox News. But I said something, and I said, you know, why we're so down on America? What if we just took even these last few years and took a moment to celebrate? And I'll tell you why, what I said, and then why I have this perspective. I said, if I were just being objective for a moment, and I think Trump is one of the worst presidents in American history, but why can't we say something like this? One of the things that happened under the Trump administration is that the modern vaccine was developed. And one of the things that happened under President Biden is that the modern vaccine was distributed. And this is an extraordinary American success. And it's a success under a Republican and Democratic president. And the Fox News post looked at me saying, you, you said that? I said, yeah, why can't we say things like that in this country? Why can't we celebrate what we're doing in America? You know, all this doomerism, American democracy is going to end. I mean, give me a break. Give me a break. We defeated slavery in America. We defeated communism. We ended Jim Crow. And you're going to give us our, our country to Donald Trump? When I was growing up, my parents couldn't get a meeting with a staff member or a member of Congress. Today, they're met three, four in Americans in Congress. This country is going to become a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, and we need leaders who are going to say we're going to take it there. And enough with the numerism. I don't believe that's what we are as a people. Do you think the changing demographic character of the country, that we're going to become a majority non-white country, is part of what feeds the alienation and the polarization? And how do you overcome that? Sure, it's a very hard thing to do. You know, there's never been a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in the history of the world. I say this, the Canadians get upset, but Canadians it's 80% white. We're 60% white. You know, my parents came to America, it was 90% European immigration. Today it's less than 15%. What we're trying to do is very, very difficult. And if Frederick Douglass, who I ended the book with, could talk about a composite. That was my next question because I was so fascinated with you and Frederick Douglass. You know, it's the greatest speech, one of the greatest speeches. You rank up there with Lincoln's second inaugural. He's in 1869, Frederick Douglass has been enslaved for over 15 years gives a speech defending Chinese immigration to the United States. And he says, I don't agree with everything in Chinese culture, but in the free air of America, the best traditions, best cultures will rise, and we will be a composite nation, a nation of nations. He had that vision back in 1869. And he said, America is on the ascent. If Frederick Douglass could say America is on the ascent, certainly we could say America is on the ascent today. And do I think it's going to be easy? No, but I think it's going to require two things. It's going to require the economic sense of figuring out how we have production, jobs working together in places left out, but it's going to require something deeper. It's going to require the navigation of what we can do to keep American tradition and American ideals and American 
patriotism while making space for the new. And I end the book with a very with a personal story. And I said, when we were growing up, there was chatter on the streets uh, when we were moving uh, from Salem uh, into Northampton, and the chatter was the Connors moving in. And then my father figured out what the issue was. There was the one worry on uh, Christmas Eve, whether we would put out the candlelights and the bags, or whether the street would have a blank, blank spot and there wouldn't be the bags out on Christmas Eve. And so my dad said, well, we're in the boat. We love, we've always celebrated Christmas. Of course, we'd be delighted to put out the candlelights. And we, in Bucks County, celebrated Christmas Eve, and then we also invited neighbors to celebrate the volley. If I had run for Congress and I had said to my parents, I'm going to go become a Christian to do that, they would have said, you're going to dishonor your grandfather. They never would have wanted me to do that. But celebrating Christmas was not seen as somehow denigrating my own tradition. We have to figure out that balance in America. How can we make sure that we still are okay and understand and celebrate the things that make America extraordinary and the narratives, and yet provide room for new people to shape that. That's a very difficult project, and that's in my new wire politics are so polarized. When election season rolls around, it's easy to get distracted by the candidates, the polls, and the pundits. But elections, how they're run, how they're funded, how they're covered by the media, and who votes in them, are critical to the health of American democracy. Something that you might have noticed is in some trouble right now. 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake, a series from the Democracy Group Podcast Network, will go beyond horse race politics to look at some of the deeper issues that could shape American democracy for the next two years and beyond. You'll hear from scholars and other experts from across our network of podcasts devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Subscribe to 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake, wherever you're listening right now. Uh, My final question, we'll turn it over to the audience. What do you say to people who think that American democracy now faces an existential threat. And that if, for example, Donald Trump were reelected, it might be the last fully free election we have in this country. Assuming it is fully free. We face serious threats. I mean, I'm not going to be Pollyannish about the serious threat. I mean, we face the threat of voter disenfranchisement. We face the threat of Trump's people being elected in, in states where the vote could not be counted properly. We face the threat of a obstructionist Republican Congress that is talking about impeaching Joe Biden and then saying, okay, then we'll figure out for what. <laughs> I mean, literally, the only amazing thing is they're, so, they're, they're brazen about it. They don't even feel the need for a justification. So yes, democracy is under threat. But do I think that it is as, under as much threat as when John Lewis was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge? Do I think it's as, as much threat as when the men who died in Normandy? Do I think it's in as much threat as when Lincoln saved the Union? No. I think this country has overcome a lot. And yes, we have our task as our generation, and we should answer it and fight for it and work to build American democracy. 
But I have faith in this country. I think deep down, this is a country that believes in the potential of every individual to have a chance. And I, I believe that from my life experience. And I think if we have an optimistic, hopeful vision for the country with a clear economic agenda, we will prevail. So I want to turn this over to the audience. Nick, you want to come up and take this mic so if somebody has a question, they can be heard. So like I said, I'm from Illinois, and it's a state like Indiana that is a rust belt state. There's a lot of communities that have lost a significant amount of jobs. The recent investments have been made to bring jobs back and to bridge like, the broadband divide. But a lot of communities still are hesitant because they view it as almost an oversight and left-wing politics trying to infiltrate their traditional ways of lives um, and livelihoods. How can we frame bringing back jobs and high thing and, and high-tech jobs as positive and not a threat to their traditional ways of life? Yeah, the question is, uh, Eastern Illinois, there are communities there that have been hollowed out. People are bringing in new jobs, bringing in broadband, but there's some resistance from the communities or lots of people in the communities because they think somehow or other it's a little plot to undermine their traditional way of life. It's a great point, and it's something I try to grapple with in the book. It actually happened in Columbus, Ohio, where apparently the semiconductor fab is coming up and 7,000 new jobs and construction jobs and, uh, and building trade jobs and engineering jobs, and the president's there, and we're driving through getting there, and it's Trump 2024 signs as we're going there. So this is a conservative community. Uh, and some of the people there, the governor's office, the Republican governor, Governor DeWine, said, you know, there's some opposition from communities that don't want the plan built. They feel that it's going to hurt the, uh, the, the community in their way of life. But at the end of the day, you know, the Republican governor was for the Republican senator was for the Republican member of Congress was for the local business chamber was for the local city groups were for the local education groups were for the Ohio State president was for which is to say he can't come just from Washington. If it was Ron Connor showing up with his chips bill in the President of the United States, people would say, come on. But when it was working with that local community and saying, okay, it's the ideas that communities and now we've got the federal government as a partner to make it possible, then I think it is more more impressive. One other big point, because I was in Galesburg, Illinois, President Obama spoke about this in 2004. This may take part of an American candidate, like Bob's words, and it's part of the, you know, Canada, it's 2004 speech. And I was there, and I was there to talk about my book at Monmouth College, and the professor says, have some pizza with these Maytag folks. And I go for pizza 20 years later. They say presidents are coming and going, Congress is coming and going, nothing has changed. Our kids are still leaving. We have no jobs. They're not going to get a semiconductor fed in Galesburg, Illinois. We have to focus on what are we going to do there? What type of, maybe it's tires, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's steel, maybe it's bolts. I mean, not everything has to be fancy high tech. But we have to do something. We have to have some economic strategy for development, we can't just say, okay, go move. And that's, I mean, that literally for 40 years it's been our policy has said, okay, well, the market will, will train them and they'll go find something. If I was in Galesburg, Illinois, I would be voting everyone out to And I wouldn't think, think about it. You have questions. Thank you so much, Congressman Donna, and as well as Dr. Schramm. Um, 
I was surprised this wasn't mentioned at all during the uh, discussion, but um, from what I've heard, you are one of a handful, less than a handful of uh, Congress people currently serving, if not accepting money from super PACs or um, outside major donations that that's still true. I don't take back money, yeah. You don't take back money. Well, see, so you already have the most background on most people in Congress. Uh, how do you maintain that um, as a successful thing for continuing your tenure in Congress and I guess Citizens United is going to be a kind of soon, so uh, I doubt that a lot more people in Congress will follow suit with you, but uh, how do you think that it's going to kind of grow and expand uh, that trend and not getting back money? We need fundamental reform. I don't think I'm any more moral than any of my colleagues. I'll tell you why. I have not taken a dime of back money since my whole career, and I'm one of 10, 6, 7 members of the Dome. But I also have the fortune of representing a district like Silicon Valley, where there are a lot of people who can afford to make contributions. If you represent a district that is poor, if you represent a district that is not, where you don't have people who can write you $500,000 checks, it's much harder. So the problem, I don't do it with any sense of moral superiority or, oh, look at me, I'm holier than thou. I say the system is broken. The system is broken. We need to overturn Citizens United, and in the absence of that, I have a bill, which I work with Russ Feingold, which says make every voter a donor. So if every voter got 100 bucks that they could give to federal Senate or presidential campaigns, that would be about $12 million. And there's a total of $6 billion of private funding in the system. So the young people and folks giving money would overwhelm the traditional money. But it's a huge issue. It's the big money coming from big oil, from big pharma, from insurance companies. I mean, that's stopping a lot of the progress in, in Congress. Uh, but what we need is a reform of the system. Uh, and, and I've been pushing for that. Another question? Congressman, thank you uh, for your vision on all this important work that you've been doing. So you talked about the structural defects in your student history. Talk to us about on the digital front. So the EU has made tremendous progress on the digital issues of the day. Why can't we get basic fundamental legislation done in the U.S. that addresses the issues right now? It hasn't been as much of a priority. Partly it's cultural. I mean, the Europeans have a more of a value of privacy given their own history and the experience of totalitarianism in Europe. So I think that they're more wary of the challenges and the excesses of giving power to entities that can violate privacy. And we haven't had the same urgency in this country. But we have to do it because I'll tell you something, and I said this to the European regulators, the tech companies are running circles around them. You can't just say, okay, we're going to innovate in policy and let the Americans innovate in technology because the, how do you regulate the technology? We need America to have the policy and the technology regulators to actually regulate it. Let me give you a concrete example. They say, okay, you have to have affirmative consent before you get your data in Europe. And the technologists have figured out how you make the box uh, colorful enough, where do you place it to get 95% consent. And the technology companies have figured out which country in the EU has the least enforcement, and they're going and putting it there. So the Europe has got a lot of virtue signaling, but they aren't actually bringing in on these tech companies. Yeah, I and mean, the tech folks have to fly to Brussels more often than they probably want, but it isn't actually effective until America gets into the game. And that's why we have to pass the legislation. Now, it's in uh, the House Energy and Commerce Committee. The debate is that the 
California standard is pretty good. The Republicans want the standard of the federal government uh, to apply to all the states, and that's a lower standard than California. The Democrats have been saying, no, California needs to be the floor. And that's what the, the fight is. If we can get an agreement on that, we can get legislation. Next question all the way in the back. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, I'm familiar with private companies like Udemy and Coursera providing uh, alternative source of education in the forms of certifications, etc. as an alternative to higher education. I'm not familiar with anything along those lines or similar in the public sector, and I was wondering if you see a role for that in the future going forward. Are the public I'm sector, you mean public universities, or? Yeah, like I, I just don't see at the state or federal level any sort of endorsement and alternative sort of education for either like blue collar careers or anything like the tech industry. I think you're right that we can do a lot more. I mean, 60% of Americans don't have a college degree. We have not focused nearly enough on what type of uh, vocational skills, trade skills people can get that could provide good uh, living uh, and work with community colleges or unions or other uh, institutions to support that kind of training. Uh, and we can do, the tech companies can be working with the community colleges or uh, other institutions to do that. Uh, there, you know, that effort can be expanded significantly. And that's one of the reasons I talked about the Google program. There's an openness, I think, that the community colleges have to that. There's an openness that they have even to vocational education. But we need to uh, have that funded and prioritized. We have time for one more. Yeah, right here. You spoke today in a very unifying manner, uh, in a way that almost anybody in any state or any income level um, would be happy to hear about manufacturing within the United States, success within the United States for, for everybody. I'm a lifelong Democrat, but in my social media, for example, my Twitter feed, I don't shut out people that are unlike me, so I'm able to see um, the opinions of people that are rural or that come from a working class. And one of the things that turns them off is that most people do not talk about them the way you spoke today in a positive way, but they hear coming from the colleges and you see these, you know, people going back and forth at, at, not talking to each other, but at each other online, is what they see coming out of the colleges is people telling them that they're privileged. And first, they answer politely, I'm not privileged. I come from working class, generations of working class, and people will answer them. You don't even, you're so stupid, you don't even understand the concept of skin privilege. You're, you're white, you must be privileged. And they're thinking like, yeah, I'm white, but my father died of black lung, and so did my, so did my grandfather. How do we bring people back into the fold? Um, people who would be, I'm not saying that they would be necessarily democratic voters, but some of them would be moderate conservatives, maybe. Um, how, but they're, they're running, they're running to the extremes when they hear foolishness like that being said to them, how do we bring them 
educators, how do we bring them back? How, how do we talk to them? How do we yes, talk to them? So that they can, so that they can hear that they're valued members of society. Well, this is a big challenge, and I think it, it, it comes from all of our life experience. I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and it was a 95% white community, a lot of working class folks there. And I talk about it in the book about was there a basketball game or something where someone said, go back to India, sure, but that's not the formative experience of my memories. What I remember is little league coaches who kept uh, putting me out to bat, even though all I could do was bunt. And they said, no, you keep playing. And I remember people, the little Bucks County Courier Times publishing my op-ed. And I remember how much pride there was uh, in uh, when I would speak at the school board. That's America. See, I think you have to have a fundamental belief and you can't fake it. And the belief is, do you think at its core, the American people by and large are a good piece of people who over the long run get it right? Or do you think you're smarter than the American people? I think there is no person in American politics who's smarter than the 250-year collective history of the American people. And I think that you have to have a deep respect for the American people and all of the people. And if you're not connecting with them, you know, we're in business. If, if let's say Apple isn't selling iPhones, when do you have to say, well, those customers are really stupid. You know, we really ought to change the customers. <laughs> no, they say, what are we doing wrong? You know, I, I, I'll be a little provocative. I love the governor, Gavin Newsom, and he was on a panel in Texas. He got a lot of love on Twitter because they asked him, okay, are the Trump voters deplorable? And he said, no, they're not deplorable, but I, I have my own father-in-law, and I, I blame the people who are giving the misinformation. They're just all uh, misinformed. I was like, well, no, they're not all misinformed. You can't just come and say everyone who votes against you is misinformed. You know, you have to take people where they are. And it's incumbent on you to say you have a compelling vision of America and you convince them to, whether that's true or not. And in the long run, I think the people will de decide correctly. And I, I think it's as simple as that. So I want to thank you for uh, this conversation, for your extraordinary book, and for the extraordinary presence you have in our public life. I do have a feeling that you're going to play a powerful role in shaping America in the years ahead. And I hope more and more political leaders will talk the kind of talk you did with us today. I think it would make a huge difference. I also want to thank our audience that's here. Everyone who's joined us on Zoom or Facebook, YouTube, or ultimately uh, our Bully Pulpit podcast. Our next program will be on Trojan Family Weekend. It's entitled, How's Joe Doing and How About the GOP? Thursday, October 6th at 11 a.m. Uh, you can watch it unless you're signed up for Trojan Family Weekend. The way to watch it and to participate is to do it virtually by going to the Center for the Political Future website here at USC and sign up for it, get the Zoom link, and we'll see you then. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture. That's USCPOLFuture. 
Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.